Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 1 Corinthians 6. I intend to cover verses 13 through 20 and finish up chapter 6. I entitle this section, Flee Sexual Immorality. Our context is this. In the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul has been complaining about the Corinthians because they are suing one another and they are cheating one another. At least he implies that they're cheating one another. And then they're taking their cases to pagan courts. And he says, this is a sin, don't do it. Then he mentions some other gross sins that they ought not to be doing. And three of those sins had to do with sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality. Well, let me go back and read verse 9 and get it exact. He says, no sexually immoral people. That includes all kinds of sexual immorality. And then he mentions adulterers in particular, and then he, for the third sexual sin he mentioned was anyone practicing homosexuality. Now, I didn't say that the Corinthians were doing this. He said, some, such, such as these, some of you used to be, he says that in verse 11, you used to be like this. But he still got the idea of sexual immorality on his mind here, because apparently that was a problem in the Corinthian church, and it was a problem because of certain antinomian teachers we can, we can infer from the evidence and from what he says, there were certain antinomian teachers that said, hey, go out and do whatever you want sexually. It's okay. Not a problem. So we start in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. Now, this makes not a lot of sense here. Well, actually, it could make sense if you don't put quotations marks around the quote, everything is permissible for me, unquote. But what Paul is doing here, and the Holman Christian Study Bible puts the that phrase in quotation marks, Paul is quoting his antinomian enemies. They are saying, everything's permissible for me. I can go out and bang whoever I want to. I can have prostitutes. I can have girlfriends on the side. It doesn't matter. And Paul says, okay, that's what they say, but this is what I say. Not everything is helpful. Yeah, yeah, if it's permissible to you, okay, but it sure is not helpful to you. And then he quotes them again. Everything is permissible for me. But then he says, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. So he's saying, yeah, there's no law against you going out and getting a prostitute. There's no law. I'm not talking about God's law. I'm talking about secular law. There's nothing, actually, that prohibits you from going out and get a mistress on the side if you're married. But you're going to be brought under control of that sexual lust that you're committing. Now, let me speculate further a little bit. It could be that Paul is referring to the man who's living with his stepmother, which was mentioned in the previous chapter. It could be that somebody's saying, hey, it's permissible for me to shack up with my, excuse me, to live in holy matrimony with my stepmother. Now, this would assume that that the Corinthians were living in a jurisdiction that would allow marriage to a stepmother, and that's highly unlikely they might have allowed concubinage maybe so he's saying well okay it's legal i can have a concubine and paul said yeah okay if, if, if i'll grant that to you but not everything is helpful having a concubine is not helpful if you if your concubine's your fripping stepmother don't be put don't get under the control of your carnal lust control it's ironic that the wrong kind of freedom license that ironically leads to slavery true freedom in christ leads to true freedom but Freedom from moral restraint leads to bondage and slavery. Paul, interestingly enough, quotes that same phrase, everything is permissible. Later on in the letter in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. 
which is exactly what he says in chapter 6, verse 12. And then he says in chapter 10, verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Now, in chapter 10, he's talking about things that are doubtful things. With Eating meat to an idol is not per se in itself immoral, but it doesn't necessarily build somebody up if it causes somebody to stumble. But it, So in 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about doubtful things. In 1 Corinthians 6, he's not talking about doubtful things. He's talking about sexual immoral things, which is not doubtful. And so his, his language is a little bit different. He doesn't say not everything builds up. As in chapter 10, he says, I'm not going to be brought under control of everything that's permissible. But I really do think that Paul is saying, the antinomians were saying everything is permissible, and Paul is quoting, but he doesn't believe that everything is actually permissible in the sense that they're using it. Of course, because he doesn't believe that sleeping with your stepmother is permissible. So we go now to verse 13. Paul continues, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Again, in quotation marks in the Holman Christian Study Bible, because Paul is quoting his antinomian opponents. And since food is one of the other cravings of the flesh besides sex, they're saying, well, yeah, man, this is what's the stomach made for? It's made for eating, right? So let's eat, 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 and eat some more. We get fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. That's okay. Food, what, what's the point of food being around if it doesn't have a stomach to go into? And what's the pro- point of having a stomach unless it's to put food in there? This Epicurean, antinomian people are probably saying this, and Paul responds by saying, but God will do away with both of them. Now, when he says God will do away with it, what he means is, the stomach's going to die, and food's going to die, because food doesn't last forever. It dies, whether it's grain or meat or cows or whatever, and people are going to die, so the stomach's going to die. So maybe you antinomians are putting just a little bit too of a high value on food. And then he switches from food back to sexual immorality. He says in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, verse 13, Last part of the verse, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so he hits two, as I said earlier, the two great carnal sensual sins that people could commit, which is gluttony and sexual immorality. Now, Paul has just dismissed the idea that the body uh, is of transcendental importance, that it means everything. He said God's going to do away with both of them, but the 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 implication is the spirit's going to live forever. Your spirit will live forever. God will live forever. Food, you're not going to be eating food in the final state, most probably. Although the thought pains me, well, we're not going to be having sex in the final state either. So that's going to be done away with, all these bodily pleasures that, to which you appoint, to which you afford such great importance. However, we don't want to go too far with that because he says, hey, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So the body is important. It's just not of transcendental importance. Now, if you commit sexual immorality, that means you're not presenting your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice, if you will. You're not doing that. Now, the Corinthians were making a fallacious argument. They were saying, hey, whether you eat meat or not, it's not going to affect your spiritual life. Food's for the stomach, stomach's for the foods. Therefore, what you eat is not going to affect your spiritual life. And actually, they're right about that. If you if you mean what you're going to eat, not how much you're going to eat, that's not really going to affect your spiritual life. But sexual immorality, oh, that's different. That will affect your spiritual life. All right, now when Paul says the body is not for sexual immorality, that reflects the typical Christian attitude. Hebrews 13:4, marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. And immoral people, of course, includes all kinds of immoral sex Fornication between unmarried people, bestiality, homosexuality, that kind of thing. 
So here we have two improper attitudes toward the body, which both lead to immorality. The first attitude we can have is the body is not as important as the spirit, so we can do anything we want with it. It's a, it's a throwaway item. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry and fornicate with whatever moves. That's the first bad attitude we can have. The other bad attitude we can have is the body is more important than the spirit. So we need to keep the body happy by feeding it food and giving it sex. It doesn't matter how much food or with whom we have sex with. It doesn't matter. We've got to make the body happy because the body's more important than the spirit. Well, both of those idiotic attitudes leads to license and immorality and death because the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, lack of peace, and so forth. Now, to show how important the body is, all we have to do is point out those scriptures in the New Testament that talk about the resurrection of the body. And there's a lot of them. I'm not going to go over them all, but... Here's one, 1 Corinthians 15, 44. The body is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. That means a body which has the Holy Spirit as its origin. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So see, there's nothing wrong with the body. The body's good. God's doing this. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. So, the body's important. If the body wasn't important, why does Jesus go to so much trouble to raise it from the dead? And notice Paul says here, the Lord is for the body. That means that Jesus does care for the body. He is not super spiritual. And what are the implications of this, the applications of this? Exercise your body. Go to the doctor when you need to have checkups if it's possible. Keep your body in good shape as much as you can. You'll be happy when you get to be old and your body starts breaking down the the easier you can glide into the grave, the happier you will be. And the more you take care of your body by exercising. I know I know that's a dirty word. I hate to say it in a Bible study. I hate to use profanity in a Bible study, but exercise needs to be done. First, not to mention the fact, keep yourself sexually pure. That's another. You know, I remember one time I did a talk in China with about 150 Chinese students. And, my, and the point of the talk was that there's no such thing as trial marriage. You shack up with somebody, you're not really marrying them. You are practicing being a roommate. And I mentioned the possible sexually transmitted diseases that one could get. And I went to Wikipedia and I got pictures of all of them. Oh, they're the grossest pictures you ever saw in your life. And you could hear the students in there going, oh, oh, oh. And then I showed them pictures of condoms. I showed them the, the size of the whole of the spaces in the condom. And I showed them that a, a HIV virus is smaller than the interstices. And so, therefore, an AIDS virus could get through that condom. And then I showed them the disclaimer, legal disclaimer language on the condoms, which said, we're trying to get rid of sexually transmitted diseases, but we can't promise it. I found three different uh, boilerplate language printed in small print on the back of the condoms. And, you know, everybody says, well, a condom, that'll, that'll prevent a sexually transmitted disease. No, it won't. Not even the condom manufacturers will say that. And so I was basically trying to point out to them that you're going to ruin your body with sexual immorality. And that is something that's true back in Paul's day and is true today. Look at homosexuals. Look at the health record. They die at the average age is about 40. Their homosexual communities are rife with tuberculosis. That's not to mention AIDS. So, you know, God knows what he's doing. If we take care of our bodies, we will be a lot happier spiritually because our spirits are tied to our bodies. If your body is sick all the time, it's going to drag you down. 1 Corinthians 6.14 God raised up the Lord. He will also raise us up by his power. Now, the reason Paul says that, of course, is if Jesus is going to raise us up, that means we must be important. If he's going to raise our bodies, our bodies must be important. 
He raised up Jesus' body. Was Jesus' body important? Oh, yes, it was. As the NIV Study Bible says, Paul mentions the resurrection of the Christian's body purposely. Paul wants to show the dignity and importance of the body so that we should not use the body for immorality. Here's some scriptures again about resurrection of the body. I've already mentioned some in the last, under the last verse. I'll mention some more. Here's 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For the corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal, i.e. this mortal body, must be clothed with immortality. That's something good to look forward to, folks. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the arching archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Resurrection. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. Romans 8, 11, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the spirit who lives in you. A straight out pronunciation of the resurrection of the body. Philippians 3.21, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. These verses are good to quote if you ever run into hyperpreterous heretics who say that the resurrection of the body happened at age 70, so therefore what happens to us now at the end of time is not going to be a physical resurrection of the body, which is heresy, nonsense. Now notice Paul says God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He includes himself with the Corinthians. And so it sounds like he is thinking here of the possibility he, may, he might be found in the grave when Christ comes, which is actually the truth. That's what happened, although he didn't know it at the time. In another place, he speaks of the possibility he might be alive. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Paul says this, then we who are still alive, and the we there shows that he includes himself with the Thessalonians. However, I don't really, well, excuse me, let me finish reading. Then he who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, I don't think that Paul necessarily thought that he was still going to be alive when Jesus came back. He's saying we Christians, and some of us Christians can be alive, and some of us are dead, and, and the dead ones could include me. You know, so I don't, I think that's, that's a stretch. That's from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, but I thought I'd mention it to you just for the sake of completeness. 1 Corinthians 6.15, Paul continues, Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Now, once again, when Paul mentions Christ's body and, say, and he says that our bodies are a part of Christ's body, it gives our bodies dignity because obviously Jesus' body had dignity. Now, that's interesting. We, all talk, we always talk about we're in the body of Christ, and I tend to think of it sort of spiritually, but he's here. Paul's talking about physically. Our bodies are part of Christ's physical body. Well, that, I shouldn't say that. The body of Christ, obviously, is not physical. Christ's body is not physical, but our bodies, now that's talking about our physical bodies are part of Christ's bodies. In other words, if we're going to be in the church, we've got to take our flesh and bones into the church. And, 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 and our flesh and bones have to confess Christ in order to be in Christ's body. So we're going to take something that exalted, our body, and hook it up with a prostitute? Absolutely not. Well, of course, that's obvious. I wonder if some of the Corinthians were, Corinthians were actually doing this, and Paul is admonishing them against current practice, or whether he's just warning them against the practice that might happen because there's so much sexual immorality in Corinth. I don't know. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 16 through 17, Paul continues, 
Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Now here, Paul is quoting from well, he's quoting from Genesis Genesis two twenty four. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So he's taking the marriage bond and saying, "Look, one flesh. That's important. That's what husbands and wives do." And now. You're going to go on a one-night stand with a prostitute and pay her money to do something that was meant by God for marriage? That's disgusting. And then he says anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So spiritually we believe in Christ and we're one with him. So he's making an analogy. Just like a husband and a wife are one flesh, us and the Lord are one spirit. We're in union. We're close together. And, of course, the idea carried over to marriage is when you have that fleshly union, there's a spiritual bond also, which is absolutely true. And so... The implication here, Paul doesn't say it, say it, but um, the implication is if you shack up with a prostitute, you are spiritually becoming one with that girl. Is that what you want to do, Corinthians? This one flesh idea Jesus quotes in Matthew 19.5. He also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and a mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. And Paul himself in Ephesians 5.31 says this, for this reason reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh so sex outside of marriage is a gross perversion of god's intention for marriage he wants husbands and wives to be one flesh he doesn't want corinthians and prostitutes to be one flesh now it is true that the spiritual union with christ is higher than the physical union of marriage after all if you're a single person and you get saved you're going to be joined with christ forever just because you don't get married that's not going to be the end of the world You'll be with Jesus forever. So obviously, spiritual union with Christ is higher than the physical union of marriage, as important as marriage is. We go to 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Run from sexual immorality, Paul says, and that's where we get the title of this section, Flee from Sexual Immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Now we've got a little exegetical problem here. If we take this straight, every sin a person could commit is outside the body, and we have some problems here. Because sexual immorality, Paul says in the same verse, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. So how can he say every sin is, that a person could commit is outside the body? He would contradict himself in the very next breath. So the NIV study Bible tries to fix that by putting the word other in there. That NIV is a loose translation, so translator's choice, they say that what Paul meant was this. All other sin a person commit can commit is outside the body. But on the contrary, sexual, sexual immorality, you sin against your body. Well, does that make sense? I don't think it makes sense at all. All other sins that you can commit is outside the body? Yeah, in other words, like jealousy or hatred or something that's in the heart, that's outside the body? What about drunkenness? Is that outside the body? What about gluttony? So it's not true that every sin a person can commit is outside the body. All other sin a person can commit is outside the body. So I really question the NIV Study Bible's translation there. I don't think that's good at all. However, the Homer Christian Study Bible continues with putting quotes around what is assumed to be antinomian objections objections to Paul. And so when it says every sin a person could commit is outside the body, doesn't that sound exactly like what an antinomian would say? He would say, or a Gnostic type of person, ah, the body's not important. So every sin that you could commit is, uh, is apart from the body. It doesn't matter. Sin is just a spiritual thing. The body is not important. 
It's just a prison that imprisons our spirit. And so you just go out and do what you want. And, of course, historically we know that's exactly what a lot of Gnostics did. Some of them were ascetics, but some of them were libertines. And Paul apparently is dealing with libertines here. And so Paul says, on the contrary, he is arguing against what these antinomians say. The person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. So that makes perfect sense. The antinomians are, say all, uh, antinomians are saying all sins are outside the body. And Paul says, no, sexual immorality is not outside the body. You sin against your own body when you do it. How do you sin against your own body? Well, we're going to see later. Well, here's some options. One is to, by profaning the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's the NIV Study Bible, we're going to, when we get to the next verse, we'll talk about the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that could be how, which, how you're sinning against your body. It could be by making your body sick, as John Gill says, quote, Sometimes its strength and health are impaired, and it is filled with nauseous diseases. <laughs> like those STDs that I showed those Chinese students. That is sinning against your own body. And like all the homosexuals who have all these physical problems, because you're sinning against your own body. I mean, I hate to mention this in an audio, but if you look on the Internet, do an image search on rimming and fisting and see what homosexuals are great, huge. I think it's 40 percent. I forgot. I did some research on this one time. But it's a, a good, goodly percentage of homosexuals practice this, these sort of perverted techniques. And I cannot describe them here because they're so disgusting. And you look at the pictures, they'll make you vomit. But you'll think, well, no wonder people get sick doing this kind of stuff. I mean, this is just a no-brain. You just don't do this kind of stuff if you expect to be healthy. Now, when Paul says the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, John Gill suggests, or he quotes some people as saying that this is a man sinning against his own flesh, meaning his wife, because his, his wife is one flesh with him, and therefore he's sinning against his wife. Well, that's an interesting idea. I don't think that's what he means. I think he means the fornicators, the sexually immoral person's own body is what he's sinning against. Going along with that idea that you're hurting your own body by committing sexual immorality, Paul also says the same thing in Romans 1.27, talking about homosexuality. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. A homosexual who is saying, oh, well, I just want to be free to be a homosexual because you're repressing me and I don't want to be in the closet anymore and it causes me to have suicidal thoughts because you're repressing me, putting me in the closet. Well, hey, get out of the closet and then keep doing this. You're still sitting against your own body. You're still hurting yourself. The reason that a parent tells a child not to put his hand on the hot stove is because the parent loves the child. The reason that God tells us not to be sexually immoral, including not to be homosexual, it's because he loves us. He doesn't want to see us hurt ourselves. He gives us freedom to do whatever the heck we want to. But that doesn't mean it's a good thing. That doesn't mean you're going to be blessed by it. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul continues, Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary or a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Now, I am going to quote several Temple of the Holy Spirit verses and we are going to have a problem all the way through, and that is, is the your, is the you, the yous in these verses, are they singular or plural? And so is the temple of the Holy Spirit that Paul is referring to, is he talking about the corporate church, or is he talking about the individual Christian? So let's go through some scriptures and look at that problem. Romans 8, 9, Paul tells the Romans now, not the Corinthians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. Now, that you there is plural, since the Spirit of God lives in you all. But if anyone 
does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. All right, so the Spirit of God lives in you all. Now, there's two ways you can interpret that. The first way to interpret Romans 8 9 is to say this. There is one body, the church, in which the Holy Spirit lives. So we would read it this way. Romans 8 9, the Spirit of God lives in you all, in you, the Roman church. Or you could interpret it individually. The second way to interpret it, if anyone... The Spirit of God lives in you individually. Well, you look at the context and you can see that the second option is preferable, that Paul is talking about the Spirit of God living in you individually. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Notice that anyone, anyone individually does not have the Spirit of Christ, he individually does not belong to him. So that's fairly easy. But let's go now to the two passages in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says this, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you all? That's plural. If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him, for God's sanctuary is holy, and that is what you all are. Again, that you is plural. So you can interpret this verse in two ways. The first way is you can say that you all are individually God's individual sanctuaries, every one of you. And the Spirit lives in each and every one of you. So we would read it this way. Don't you yourselves know that you all, individually, each and every one of you, are God's sanctuary, God's temple, and that the Holy Spirit of God lives in each and every one of you individually? The second way you can interpret it is corporately. You all corporately are the one sanctuary, are the one sanctuary at Corinth. Don't you, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple, God's sanctuary at Corinth, and that the Spirit of God lives in you, the the Corinthian church, well, you're not going to tell by grammar what Paul is talking about, but the context is very clear because the first, the 10 or so, well, the 11 verses before 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 are talking about church building. Paul is talking about if I planted, Paul's watered, if any man builds on another man's foundation and is the foundation laid of wood and hay, stubble, or gold and precious stones. He's talking about building churches, and that's so the context is very clear here. So we interpret 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 17 and by saying, don't you yourselves know that you, Corinth, you all Corinthians collectively, corporately, are God's sanctuary, God's temple, one temple, not a bunch of little temples, but one temple. That's easy. Now here in our verse in 1 Corinthians 6:19 we read this don't you know that you all's body your I mean is plural y'all's body is a sanctuary of the holy spirit now the question is again there's two ways you can interpret that you could say that Paul meant that each one of your individual bodies is a temple a sanctuary of the holy spirit each and every one of you has a temple is a temple of the holy spirit or you could interpret it corporately. You could say, don't you know that your Corinthian church body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, one sanctuary, not a bunch of sanctuaries. You could go either way with that grammatically. So we have to go to the context. What is the context here? Paul is talking about Corinthians joining up with prostitutes. So in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, the context favors that Paul is talking individually here, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I will point out that lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of commentators and preachers say that, that the individual Christian is a a temple of the Holy Spirit, they don't quite mention as much that the, at least in America, that the church itself corporately is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It'd be nice if they would emphasize that also, because both, well, as I said in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's obviously talking about the corporate temple. The corporate church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Here, I think he's talking about individuals. However, there are some commentators like Jameson Fawcett and Brandon Gill who says that, no, here Paul is also talking about a corporate sanctuary, one corporate sanctuary, not a bunch of individual, corp- not a bunch of individual sanctuaries. For and the, and John Gill backs that assertion up by pointing out that body is singular here in this verse. Don't you know that you all's body, that y'all's body, is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit? If he was referring to individuals, I suppose, to carry out Gill's argument a little further, don't you know that? Your bodies, you all's bodies, are a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, Paul would have said if he meant individual bodies. But it didn't say y'all's bodies, plural, are, plural, a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, or sanctuaries of the Holy Spirit. But it got body is singular, and sanctuary is singular, even though your is plural. And he says, well, your is plural because the possession of that one sanctuary belongs to all the individuals and in, in Corinth, and they're plural. And that's reasonable. But that doesn't take into account the context so much, which is individuals joining up with a prostitute. Now, of course, Paul could be saying, look, you join with a prostitute, and then you come to the Corinthian church. You've polluted yourself, but then by joining, the, in, because you're a member of the church, you've polluted the church also. That would fit in, in with his idea of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, kick the immoral man out of the church who was sleeping with his stepmom. Well, I don't know. How, whichever way you take that, it doesn't really matter to me because... If you commit sexual immorality, you're going to defile both your temple, your body, and you're going to t- defile and pollute the church body, both. So, you know, just don't do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, we'll finish up this audio. For you, plural, were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your plural bodies. We have the same thing as, as this talking about. Individual Corinthians glorify God in their body by not hooking themselves up with prostitutes, or is he talking about glorify God in your church body at Corinth by keeping it pure and don't allow people in the church who are fornicating with prostitutes? Either way, what does it mean that you were bought at a price? Well, the price was Jesus' blood, of course. I don't have the precious and incorruptible blood of God of Christ, I think it says. Where is that? Somewhere in First Peter, I think. I don't have the scripture in front of me, but we know we're bought at a price. That price was Jesus' death of the cross, and that's a high price. Therefore, because Jesus did so much to justify and sanctify you, don't go out with prostitutes. Don't commit sexual immorality. Glorify God in your body by not committing sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, everything do everything for God's glory. Glory means the public manifestation of one's excellent characteristics. Well, if we're joined to Christ, and Christ is God, and then people say, well, this is what God does. He sanctions sexual immorality, and that's disgusting. Don't do that. Colossians 3.17, Paul says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for God's glory because his glory is what is important because God demands glory. He expects glory because he's God. We need to give it to him. I recall a young, I won't say millennial, I guess she was in her early 30s, maybe late 20s, early 30s, I forgot. Anyway, she was having all kinds of romantic problems. She had a fiancé for 10 years with whom she was living in a sexually immoral relationship, but then she cheated on that relationship and hooked up with another guy. 
that she said she was in love with and then she started having sex with him and so she was all screwed up and she felt worthless and miserable and she was about to die anyway to make a long story short i, I witnessed to her earlier and then when she told me what she was doing i said mm, you're headed for trouble and then i didn't say anything for several months she was a fellow colleague a professor at a college i was at and then i when she had gone back home for the holidays and i was back here in south carolina I was talking to her through the internet, and it turns out she's in bad shape. She's basically suicidal. So I told her, I said, well, I told you months ago what the answer is. To make a long story short, she prayed the prayer of Christ, the you know, the, the prayer of repentance with me, and then I started doing Bible studies with her, tried to get her to go to a church back there. I was home then, but back there in China where she was teaching, I knew of a church, tried to get her to go there, and several months of teaching, and it just came up she was going to meet one of her old boyfriends on a trip somewhere, not in China, but in another country. And she said something about it. I didn't even have sex with him. And I began to realize that this girl's attitude toward sex was entirely casual. And so I mentioned to her that all this stuff that the Bible is very clear that Christians are not supposed to commit sexual immorality. Well, and she would say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to give myself just to anybody, but if I find somebody that loves me, I'm going to give myself to him. You know, that kind of nonsense. I said, okay, she's a young believer. Okay, she doesn't know any better, but I'm, you know, not going to let that one go. So, sure enough, turns out, she said, nobody will ever love me. Nobody will ever love me. And, but then she found somebody, an atheist, that she decided to go live with to find love. And so she lives in another sexually immoral relationship, and I haven't talked to her since. I said, well, bye-bye. You know, that's it. I'm not going to disciple somebody that's going to be that flippant. Well, in the course of conversation with her, as I was saying, I'm not going to deal with you anymore, I mentioned that you always seem to have a very flippant and casual attitude towards sexual immorality. And in one of our discussions, she said that 70% of the time that she had immoral sex, well, she didn't think it was immoral, I did, 70% of the time, it was bad. 70%! And you know why it was bad? It's because that ain't the way that God meant for us to behave. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. In our next chapter, we will take up this, Principles of Marriage, because that follows right on, logically, with the idea of fleeing sexual immorality. Hope you enjoy that audio and stay tuned for it. I hope you enjoyed this one. 